as you may have picked up from this first Sunday in Advent, the thing we're thinking about is hope. What is it? Where do we get it? How do we have more of it? What do we hope in? What do we hope for? So I, I hope, I hope that we'll all get something out of this. But of course we might not. But I hope we will. What I'm going to try and do is move from a very big picture, thinking about how cultures and societies think of time and then drill right down into like, okay, what is the, the phenomenology of hope, the reality of it in our lives, and then ground it in some practical stuff that we can think about. Okay. Sounds exciting. Let's pray. Lord God, help us. Fill us with all joy and peace as we trust you and fill us with hope this morning. Amen. First point to make is you and I are absolutely future-focused beings. This sets us apart from every other sentient being, really. We have a dog. Her name is Chimmy. She's a very intelligent dog. She's a gifted and talented dog, I'm sure, because, you know, she lives here and she must be. And, and you know, objectively, she's quite smart. She's a Labradoodle. But I'm pretty sure Chimmy's horizon of hope doesn't extend much beyond I'm hungry, there's food, there's Mark, he'll give me a treat. I don't think she spends a lot of time planning for the future. You and I, on the other hand, spend an enormous amount of time and energy thinking about what's coming next, don't we? All the time. Our minds, this is one of the interesting things about being human. Our minds and our sort of sense of self ranges forward from, I, you may be sitting here going, I hope I get something out of this talk. I hope Mark doesn't speak too long. I hope we can get out of here before we get a parking ticket, you know, so immediate like hope. I hope he finishes before I need the loo, you know, all those sorts of things are very immediate through to what you might hope will happen next week through to what you hope might happen in years to come. We're always thinking about the future and planning our lives, acting in the present in the light of what we think is going to happen. Okay, this is just the part of what it is to be human. Now, what does that mean in terms of how the whole world works? Well, there are there are really three ways human societies have thought about the future and about hope as a result. Okay, very simply, one way, which is very common, is that we live in a state of inevitable decline. So you can you can hope for stuff, but but really the world is all getting worse, isn't it? I mean, you know, your kids are certainly not going to enjoy the kind of life that you enjoy. They're not going to be able to afford to buy a house, though maybe they will if you come tomorrow night, you'll find out how. They, you know, we're going to live in a post-antibiotic age. The sea levels are rising. We'll have water views from up here, which will be great, but you know. I mean, shores will be underwater, so that's going to be, that's going to suck for everyone down there. Like, it's going to be terrible. It is just getting worse. More wars, nuclear apocalypse. Everything's getting worse, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. Human societies have thought this for the last 
three and a half thousand years. Every generation is tempted to think that we're in some kind of terrible terminal decline and the future is essentially hopeless. Now, you may be okay, but your kids and your grandkids are totally stuffed. Is that right? Is that really where we're at? Is that, and, and if it is, where's the hope? And, and if that's, very pro, that's very problematic, right? Because hope, if you lose hope, you lose everything, really. But it, so, so is that right? Oh, it's an interesting question. There's, and you see this in our culture, we, we've, which is so funny because we've never been richer and safer. We've never been healthier. We've never lived longer. We, our world now is home to 8 billion people, the vast majority of whom are rich and healthy and happy. That's extraordinary, right? Now, there's still like a billion people who are living in, in poverty and 50, 40 million people who are in slavery. And so there's still awful evil. But compared to where we've come from, there's far more people who are far better off than at any other stage in human history. But we still have the sense, ah, oh, the world. Now, why is that? Because we're all going to die. So actually, at one real level, forget about massive societal decline you and I are going to die. There is a full stop at the end of our lives. Okay, that's, that's it. So there we go. There's another way to think about this, isn't there? And that, that, that is the time is cyclical. Everything just goes through in cycles. This comes, you, you see this in, in Indian thought. In, in many thoughts, like this endless cycle of reincarnation, of karma, of the world balancing itself out, you're born, you live, you die, you come back again, you're born, you live, you die. And this is our experience, and this is the experience of the world, and, and we just go round in endless cycles. Now, at some point, maybe the, the, the hope is the cycle will spiral up, and we'll all end up in some form of nirvana or some kind of ultimate union with the divine that makes the world a perfect place. But essentially, we are in this endless cycle of life. Nothing gets better, nothing gets worse. Uh, we're all just destined to repeat the mistakes of the past. That's not a common view in our culture. Though, though as, as Buddhism and Hinduism in their popular forms influence us, it, it is common. There's an argu it's becoming common. There's an argument which I won't get into, but if you want to read it, there's a phenomenal historian called Timothy Snyder, who is a professor from Yale, who is, whose speciality is Central Europe, Ukraine, Poland, Russia. And his argument is actually you can't understand Russia and what Russia is doing in Ukraine without understanding the essentially cyclical nature of the way some of the Russian thinkers and philosophers understand Russia in a perpetual state of attack by pagan forces. So for the last two, th you know, last thousand years, there's been a cycle of history where Mother Russia, as the light of the world, the one true Christian nation, is continually attacked by the satanic forces of evil, and this just cycles through. And so, 
an eternal cycle of good versus evil that has been played out with Russia at the center and the war in Ukraine is simply an outworking of that. So that's one, that's decline, that's the cycle. What's the other view of human time and history? Yeah, progress. There's a book, I can't remember the guy's name, wrote in 1928, I think, called The Idea of Progress that is a great historic analysis of the last 200 years and says, really, from the 18th century on, from the Renaissance, we had this new idea that the world was getting better and human progress was possible. And that, that was very influential for 200 years, right up until the First World War. <laughs> and then it took a bit of a beating and it's been beaten ever since, but it's still real. Okay, so now, and this is the idea that the world is getting better and better and better. Now, if you want an interesting book, and I don't know if you read this. So there's a there's a great website. We'll put you send you to a website. There's a great website called humanprogress.org. That is worth it's worth a visit. And it's it looks at the data of like how, you know, where are we actually at as a human species? How is the world going? Are we making any progress? And the guys behind the website, a guy called Marion Tupi, who's an economist, has written a brilliant book called Superabundance. So there are the three views. Now, here's the interesting thing. Where does hope fit in those, in the idea of, pro are we really getting better? And what is that a hope for? Are you getting better? Here's an, in, here's an interesting thing. Let's take it from the big grand things right down to our area. In the Balmain, Roselle census area, we are one of the, we have the lowest incidence of heart disease in Australia, apparently. Okay, so we are a very physically healthy community. Can I hear an amen for that? Yeah, we're very healthy. We also have the highest reported incidence of mental health challenges. So can I hear an amen for that? Wait, let me call my therapist first to see if it's okay. So that's interesting, right? We're, we're rich and we're healthy. Progress has served us well, but boy, there's a lot of mental health challenges in our community and maybe in our room. Now, that could be because we're so rich, all our other needs are taken care of, we can sit around and worry about ourselves. And maybe it's because we're highly educated as well. And maybe it's because we can all afford to have our own therapist. And maybe it's because it's really real that actually all the material progress we have doesn't actually feed our souls in a way that we hope. And so that works itself out in some fairly significant mental health challenges in us and around us. And one of the challenges for young people that is very real, that shapes this data, is there is an epidemic of meaninglessness and hopelessness and the crazy climate extinction panic that is completely unjustified the level of existential angst and panic around the climate extinction people that take this dynamic and just add put do it on steroids has created an enormous sense of despair and hopelessness amongst our young people you go so hope matters right now you might say but mark what if they're right 
what if we're all going to drown? That's the good question. And I'm glad you asked it. You might also say, but Mark, how do we know we're getting better? What, where do we ground our hope? What, what, how can we hope for our kids and our grandkids to have a better world? So let's go from that big picture down into like the phenomenology of hope. And then we can start to think about this. And then we'll bring the whole Jesus piece in and we'll be done by lunchtime. <laughs> okay. So how does hope work? And, uh, and feel free, as always, to, to chip in. So, so here's you and me. The interesting thing about us as humans is while we are future-focused, we also have the ability to hold in our minds ourselves through time. Hope is about the past. We'll think about that. It's about the present, and I'm going to do the present as like a road, and it's obviously about the future. Okay, so hope has as it at its essence a positively anticipated future as opposed to a negatively anticipated future, which would be what? Dread. Like the opposite of hope would be dread or fear. Like, oh, so hope is, I think this is going to happen and I'm really looking forward to it. Can't wait. Okay, that's going to be great. Be fantastic. When all of, when there is no more global, no more hunger and poverty in the world, that is something to look forward to. Or when Mark stops talking so I can have another cup of coffee, eagerly anticipated future state, right? You go, yes. All right. Now the question is, uh, what is the basis for that eager anticipation? And that is an understanding of or a belief in a certain external reality that uh, you believe to be true. So our future hope, our belief about how the world is going to work sometime in the future is always grounded in something. It doesn't just emerge. It's grounded in our experience of reality. The fundamental difference between wishful thinking and hope is that wishful thinking is not grounded in any external reality. It's just wishful thinking. Like, I'll give you an example. And now, now by the way, the, the reasonableness of our hope, the power of our hope in the world depends upon the nature of the external reality that governs the hope. So I believe in this hope, and I'll go back and illustrate this. And because I believe this to be the case, I, I extrapolate from that to this anticipated sense of future. And then on the, so I look forward to that. And then on that basis, I live in faith. And that's trusting that what's happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future are connected. And because of that, I am able to act. And 
faith is always about how do I act? How do I take steps on this path as a result of what I believe to be true? Okay, let me pull that together and give you a very concrete example. You're going on a road trip after church, say you're going to drive to visit a family member on the central coast. Okay. Now you, you check ways after church, you look at how long it's going to take you and you hope that you'll get there in about an hour and a half, right? You hop in the car, you think, okay, I hope I'm going to get there an hour and a half. And, uh, and then you say, oh, I hope I've got enough petrol in the car. Okay, so your anticipated future of getting to the central coast in an hour and a half depends upon what the the external reality of how much petrol you've got in the tank of your car. If you've only got enough petrol to take you 10 kilometers, you, you know, you're going to get up onto the North Shore and and then a fate worse than death, you're going to break down and be stuck on the North Shore for a bit, you know, and that's uh, going to be terrible. So you're going to have, so if you've got, you can say, I hope I'm going to get to the central coast, but I have no, I don't have enough petrol in the car, no matter how firmly you believe you have petrol in the car, no matter how eagerly you anticipate the hope of getting there to be with your family, no matter how reasonable it thinks you'll be there, if you don't have petrol in your car, you're not going to get there. So your hope is grounded in a certain belief about past and about the way the world is. Does that make sense? I, I can give you another example. You, uh, and I won't ask for a show of hands. How many of you ever buy lottery tickets? I've never bought a lottery ticket in my life. Is it reasonable for me to hope that I might win the lotto? Well, no, not unless I buy a ticket. Without a ticket, it's completely unreasonable for me to hope that I might win. If you've bought a ticket, it's a little more reasonable for you to think that you might win. I mean, it's still, it's still not that great. I heard a story yesterday about actually a, an MP, state MP, whose colleague, who's a staffer, a friend of his, played a prank on him. And he knew this guy had bought a lottery ticket and the lotto was $10 million, the prize. And this guy from his office phone that wasn't on this MP's phone phoned the guy and he got the script off the website of what they say when you tell them that you've won the lottery. And he phoned this MP, put on a voice and gave the whole script pretending to be from the New South Wales Gaming Authority. And the guy got, and he believed him, took him in. Guy got very excited, hung up, phoned his family thought he'd won $10 million. Well, of course, he left it most of the day, which is very dangerous because he could have taken, he didn't, but he could have made some catastrophic decisions like walk into parliament because he could have gone in and gone, oh, you're a bunch of, I hate you all, I quit and walked out and then taken the call from his friend going, that was a joke. That would have been catastrophic. Because the reality was he hadn't won. And he might have made taken some actions in the present on the basis of that mistaken belief that could have had catastrophic outcomes for him. So hope, hope 
for it to have power in our lives needs to be grounded in some real reality beyond ourselves. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. What is the biggest single obstacle to human hope? Death. Like this is the problem, right? At a very real level. And if you've had, and you go, how do you have hope that's not just wishful thinking that somehow it'll all be okay? How do you then live with a, with a, I mean, it's great to hope that you've won the lottery. If you've bought a ticket, it's great to hope that you'll, you know, you'll get up to the central coast. It's great to hope for things. But is there a hope that goes beyond, that gives us hope beyond the grave? And this is where Christianity comes in, where religion comes in. And I think Christianity alone offers this incredibly powerful reason for hope. Because Christianity says death is not the end, that it's a transition moment from this world into the next, directly into the presence of God. And this slightly strange reading that Rolf read talks about this. This is a long, complex argument in the book of Hebrews that's in front of us, where the folk who've become followers of Jesus and are written to the book of Hebrews, they've started off strong with God, and now they've they've started to drift. They've started to go, oh, maybe Christianity is not true. Maybe it's all a bit hard. Maybe we're all going to die anyway. Persecution started to come their way. And the writer to Hebrews says, listen, God has sworn, God has promised, he's made an oath, right? He has made an oath that he will raise you from the dead and bring you home to him forever. God wanted to make clear the unchanging nature of his purpose, very clear to the heirs of what was promised. That is, he wants to say his purpose is to take us from, from, from death to life through his son, Jesus. And he's going to make that super clear. And he's going to promise, he's going to promise on a, that that's going to happen. And we're going to see as the book of Hebrews unfolds, how that happens. But he says this, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us. So we fled the hope that we have that's set before the, the Hebrew Christians and us is that if you follow Jesus, you follow him into death, through death, and out of death on the other side to life. So that's the hope. It says you, you follow Jesus, death is defeated, you'll live forever. That's a great hope. And he says, we, you may be greatly encouraged. And he says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's a powerful verse. Okay, this hope is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. What does that mean? Well, it means this. This is the hope that we have, right? Resurrection here. That's our hope. And along the path, we're tempted to drift. We can give up. We can get discouraged. We can go, ah, oh, it's all too much. The world's just in decline. I can't manage this anymore. And the book of Hebrews says, our hope in this, in all of this, is an anchor to keep us on the path. 
It stops us drifting. It grounds us and says, don't drift. You can keep following Jesus. It's okay. Keep grounded in that hope. Trust in that hope. Now, what is the external reality that this hope is based on? What, what is the ground? So, Because you could go, ah, oh, life after death is just wishful thinking, right? And many people might say that. As Christians, we don't think life after death is wishful thinking. We think it's a reasonable, greatly anticipated hope that changes how we act in the present because of stuff that happened in the past and what happened in the past that gives us confidence for what's going to happen in the future. Death, yeah, the death and resurrection. That We think that's historic events that actually happened. Now, it happened a long time ago, but it actually happened. And this is not a new thought. This is 1 Corinthians says this. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says this. Very clear. This is all of Christianity. Your hope and my hope rests on the belief that Jesus died for you and was raised again for you. So this is the argument. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? So some people, when Paul was writing, thought, by definition, no one can be raised from the dead. Therefore, Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead. If there's no resurrection, then even Christ has not, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, look at this, like the Christianity is very, it's brutally honest intellectually and philosophically sophisticated in its honesty. It understands this phenomenology of hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just about a set of ideas. He says this, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, you are driving to the central coast on an empty fuel of tank. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, you are someone who's been pranked by a friend to believe you've won the lottery when you haven't won the lottery. If Christ has not been raised from the dead. That he goes, we're then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ is not raised, just in case you missed it up in verse 14, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ isn't raised, you're stuffed. That's what the Greek says in colloquial form. And then in verse 19, which is an extraordinary verse, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no external reality, no historic event, death, resurrection, death defeated, and we're just following Jesus because we think it'll make us happier in this world, Paul says we're the most, we're to be pitied more than anyone else. We're like that. MLC, who was pranked, who might have spent the whole day going around living as though he'd won $10 million, and thankfully he didn't, but imagine if he had, and blown up his career, blown up his life on the basis of an entirely false description of reality. So you and I are to be pitied if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, because our hope is false.
And then how we choose to live in the world is completely stupid. That's what it says. Because if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then you and I won't be raised from the dead. Then death is really the end. So then don't hope for anything beyond that. Just make the most of what you can now. Live for yourself. Eat, drink, get married. Get as much pleasure in as you can until you die. That's it. Our lives are of no real moral significance. You know, the best you can hope for is that your kids have a decent life. But even that doesn't matter because they'll die. And their kids will die. And their kids' kids will die. And everyone will die. And, and really, we're no different morally to any other being. So just maximize your pleasure, get away with what you can. And of course, as Christians, we think that's not the way to live. We do, we do, we do stupid things, like we give away our money. We put up with annoying people. We forgive our enemies. We care for the poor. We put our lives at risk for others. Like, you know, that you only do that if there's a hope that, of resurrection, right? But can you see the power then of hope, right? And it's grounded in historic reality, I hope. I mean, it might not be. Like, that's what Paul says. He goes, ah, you know, like, I think about it. It's, you know, there's no room for arrogance here. You, you trust this is the way the world is, but you don't do it with any arrogance. As we come into Advent, we need that hope. Like, like super practically, you've got to then say, well, what does, what is, how does hope keep me on the path here, right? Don't drift. This Christmas, this Advent, we want to renew our clinging to the anchor of Jesus, don't we? So yes, because there's the hope. That, and, and this is what I mean. If it's true, if Christianity is true, the best is yet to come. Isn't that? That's why Paul can say, even though we're outwardly wasting away, we're inwardly being renewed. So, so here's the kind of Christian vision of hope. You know what? This is right over time. This is what your body's doing, my body's doing. But even while that's happening, what else is happening? From the inside out, we're being renewed. And one day our bodies will be renewed as well and we'll all join up together and it'll be glorious and wonderful. That's great. No endless cycle of karma and reincarnation. No, no, no. The history has a direction, a purpose, and we're on the path, so don't drift. But you might say, as I hear the kids coming, Mark, how do I have this hope? Well, God will give it to you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you this hope in a way that actually deeply, powerfully changes you. That's what God will do for you this morning. So if you're hopeless, ask the Holy Spirit, even this morning, even this Advent, to fill you with hope. Fill you with hope. The best is yet to come. 
Lord Jesus, fill us with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit that grounded in the truth of your life and death and resurrection, you have defeated death for us. You have thrown open the gates of glory. You have won for us an eternity of resurrected life. Fill us with this hope that we might overflow with hope this Advent. And we ask you to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, because we know in the natural area, just ourselves, our hope leaks, and therefore we drift and we wander and we become ineffective and full of despair. And so, Lord, just this morning, powerfully, by your Holy Spirit, fill us with hope. Amen.